Good morning and welcome to this week's edition of Unleashed, where we bring world-class thought leaders live to you every Thursday. I'm your host, of course, Jeff Petz, the CEO of Results. And if you're joining us for the first time today and you're wondering who we are, our company Results was created to help make it easier for companies to grow. We work alongside business leaders to create high-performing teams and winning cultures. So thank you very much to everyone that's joining us today. This show was really created for you, the leader. As a small token of our appreciation, we will be giving away copies of Tom's latest book, The Excellence Dividend. All you need to do for a chance to win your very own copy is fill out the feedback form at the end of the show. And the way that you access that feedback form is when you click the leave meeting button when we're done here today, make sure you click on the continue button after that in the bottom left hand side. That button will actually direct you to the feedback page which also includes some special offers to make an even bigger impact on your business. And if you're a leader that's looking to build your own high performance remote team during this pandemic, we're running a workshop on June 3rd from 10 to 11.30 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. It's a $300 workshop, but with your attendance today, you can sign up directly for only $79. There's only 20 spots left, and the sign-up form is in the feedback section following the show. And if you like what you see today, the biggest thing that you can do to help us grow our community and our audience is by spreading the message. You can post your comments, your feedback, anything that you learned today, your favorite moment from the episode, to social media using the hashtag results unleashed. And if you wanna get questions in for Tom, you can use the Q&A box at the bottom of your screen. There's a chat box and a Q&A box, but be sure to put them in the Q&A box. If we don't happen to get to your questions, we will get back to you promptly over email. So if you have questions or comments or any, anything else that you wanna share with us, you can get to us by using the email info at unleashresults.com. And as a special sneak peek to next week's episode, we're going to be joined by peak performance expert Brad Stolberg, all the way from Oakland, California. Now on with today's show. We are so delighted to be joined by a very special guest, one of the most renowned business and leadership thinkers of our time, Tom Peters. Tom has a very storied biography. He is a civil engineering graduate of Cornell, and he earned an MBA and a PhD in business at Stanford. He holds honorary doctorates from institutions that range from the University of San Francisco to the State University of Management in Moscow. And he has been honored by dozens of associations in content areas such as management, leadership, quality, human resources, customer service, innovation, marketing, and design. In the US Navy from 1966 to 1970, he made two deployments to Vietnam as a combat engineer in the fabled Navy Seabees. He also worked in the Pentagon and in the White House under the Nixon administration. He then worked at McKinsey and Company from 74 to 81, becoming a partner in 1979. And in 1982, of course, the entire trajectory of Tom's career would forever change when he released his first book and best-selling smash hit, In Search of Excellence. Over the last 40 years, he has authored 17 books, delivered over 2,500 speeches in 50 states to 67 countries and more than 5 million people. He's been called the Red Bull of management thinkers, and in November 2017, he received the Thinkers 50 Lifetime Achievement Award. He's also had a super uh, influence on our business, 
Tom has a famous quote that execution is the missing 98%. And we used to deliver executive workshops titled the missing 98 in honor of Tom and his research. And if you're one of his 166,000 Twitter followers, you would think he's just getting started. So I know what you're all thinking. How did you convince Tom to come on your show? Well, here's how we did it. Uh, we, uh, we delivered meals to our staff about six weeks ago, and I posted a tweet about it when we were done. It was such a compelling, moving moment for everybody involved, and it's one of my favorite memories of this whole pandemic. And miraculously, Tom saw it and he commented on it. And so as Allison for Gale says, when I see a window of opportunity, I'm a bit of a nibbler. So I took a shot and reached out to Tom and asked if he'd come on the show expecting I would get denied and, and turned down, uh, reminiscent of a high school dance. Uh, but instead, Tom said, thank you. or said, uh, thank you for your work and I'd love to come on the show. And so Tom, I wanna just thank you to start off by your generous commitment of time today. Thank you and welcome to the show. Well, Thank you for the welcome, and thank you for your generous willingness to have me on your show, uh, because the kinds of things that you care about and I care about, which are incredibly similar, can actually be one hopes of a little bit of use at this crazy, insane, once every 100 years moment for which none of us, by definition, are prepared. Yeah, and we certainly hope. So we have a lot of ground that we want to cover today with you, Tom, while we have you. And, and perhaps where we should start is to acknowledge that you have come out with two very insightful white papers, and thank you for sending those. And one of those white papers is the Excellence 2020, the 27 number ones. And we don't have time to explore all 27 elements, but I would like to dig uh, a little bit deeper into a portion of it. And as sure. a, maybe as an overarching comment, Tom, uh, regarding managing in a crisis, you know, you have said that between uh, you know, what we do between now and October will largely determine our life legacy. And that's certainly a bold statement. Can you explain maybe what you mean by that? This is, I think, pretty obviously a once in a hundred years event which is just extraordinary. And though I don't know your demographic, uh, most of the people who are watching and listening to us are probably leaders of something or other. Not a, one of the top 50 companies in Canada or the United States, but running a six-person training department somewhere or a four-person consultancy or, or what have you. Uh, and I think the way you behave as a human being toward other human beings at this point is really a defining moment. And some people are responding incredibly well, and some people aren't. It's almost as simple as that. Uh, you know, I was saying it to somebody relative to smaller businesses. Uh, you know, I, I certainly realize that a small business can have 100% of its revenue wiped out, but let's say 60 or 70%. Uh, I think as a business person, <laughs> it's a strong statement. You got to mortgage your house to take care of your people at this point in time. And you don't have to lose the house and so on. And, you know, you're, speak, you're in Canada, I'm in the United States and social services in Canada 
And my wife and I spend a couple of months every winter in New Zealand are a hell of a lot better than they are in the United States. But when you employ people, you are responsible for them. And you're responsible for their, I don't mean you're a big daddy, I don't mean you're or anything like that, but you're responsible for their lives in a very significant way. And if you don't buy that act, excuse my language, you are on my permanent shit list. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about as simple as that. So this is a, this is a huge deal. And, uh, you know, I was born and raised a Presbyterian, but I don't darken many church doors these days, but I call it lowercase r religious. You know, it's not about a, a, an official faith, but it's about, you know, atheists have as much of an obligation to their fellow human beings as, you know, good Catholics who go to mass seven times, you know, a week. And, and that's, that's what this special time is about. And I really think, you know, I, speaking as an old fart, I said to somebody, as I look at my life as an old fart, I have only one test. And that is, can I walk past a mirror without barfing? And, uh, well, I, I, I know we got a million things to talk about, but the New York Times columnist David Brooks wrote an op-ed piece, you know, maybe a year or two ago now, and, and I thought it was one of the most brilliant things I had ever read. He contrasted what he called resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. And the resume virtue is I went to, a, to the University of Toronto and I got a, had a 4.7 grade point average and I was promoted six times in the first five years. And, you know, I now live in a big house. Those are the resume virtues. The, the eulogy virtues is how did you behave toward other people? Uh, you know, did he care? Did she care? Was it demonstrated? And I, you know, I was an engineer, so I don't have any good classical training, but I think resume virtues versus eulogy virtues is as good as anything that ever came out of the mouth of one of those incredible Greek philosophers. Yeah, yeah, that's well said, Tom. Very well said. Now, you, you're, you've obviously built a, built a career on the theme of excellence. And prior to you, I always sort of looked at, at excellence as a destination and try, you know, striving to get there, something to reach for. Now, one of your 27 uh, most important elements of excellence in 2020 is this notion that excellence is in the next five minutes. That stopped me in my tracks and totally reframed how I thought about excellence. How does that show up, excellence in the next five minutes? Uh, well, first of all, I'm delighted that you responded as you did, uh, because I do think people think of excellence as a mountain to climb and, and so on. Uh, you and I are having a conversation. The only thing going on in our life right now is the next five minutes of this conversation. That's the only thing I can be as a human being or you can be as a human being. It's one conversation at a time. I, I, I had a semi-serious conversation with a psychiatrist friend of mine. If you will give me the bot, give me a sample of 10 10 line emails by a boss that I can do a complete technically accurate 
uh, psychiatric evaluation of that person from those emails. You know, do you care? Do you catch your words? Are you, you know, is it, well, I want to hear this report on this. It, it, it's, this is a, the most trivial story in the world. Uh, there was a little issue which is uninteresting, and my wife and I have got a complicated enough life, so we have somebody who helps us with our bill paying and so on, and we switched accountants. And the woman who works with us in the new accountancy, you know, there's a regular exchange of emails, and every email she sends me starts out with, hi, Tom, uh, comma, space, and then whatever, like, why don't you pay your damn bills on time? And then it ends up with, you know, have a, have a good day, comma, Barbara. And that is the most trivial thing in the world. And I'm 100 years old, but it struck me as to how untrivial it was. Yeah. You know, most of us were in a hurry. We do the email. We say, you know. Joe, let me hear the report on what's going on. That, just a little high, Tom, is, a, is an acknowledgement of humanness. And, you know, I don't know how the people who are watching us will respond, but it really hit. You said you were hit by excellence as the next five minutes. I was hit equally hard by her first email and my realization as to what a callous SOB I am. And I don't think I am, but it's just the, it's, it's the, there's, you know, my next to last book was called The Little Big Things. And the hardest part of writing a book is picking an epigraph, as I like to say, because you got to pick five sentences that cover the last five years of your life. And in The Little Big Things, I think I had my best epigraph in 17 books. It comes from the American statesman Henry Clay. And the one liner is courtesies of a small and trivial character are the ones which strike deepest in the grateful and appreciating heart. And I think that's, you know, on my top five list of incredibly, that's the stuff you remember. It's yeah. when somebody just goes out of the way a little bit to help somebody else. You know, as I said to somebody, <laughs> forget the million dollar sale, everybody in the world going to tell you you're the greatest living human being after you make the million dollar sale it's you know somebody who said you know i was talking to your client and they said you really pay attention to him you really take your time that's the big deal yeah uh, next that's really, uh, i'll i'll retract my statement next yeah. 60 seconds yeah no that's that's excellent and like i say it it really reframed for me what excellence is all about and uh trying to be more present and just be the best that you can be in that moment. And the, and the interesting thing about it is that it probably gets you to, if, even if excellence was a destination, it will get you to that destination faster. So. I completely, I mean, that's, you know, that's obviously my bias. I'm very yeah. happy to have you have incredible long-term success. So I yeah. do want to add something, which is just me being a cranky old man. Uh, I've obviously had significant success. You have had significant success. Uh, my one-liner or two-liner is, I don't like mass murderers. I don't like rapists or child abusers. And then number three on my list is successful people who think they deserve their success. If you are in a successful position, you have had so much bloody damn good luck from the beginning. It isn't even funny. I, I was doing something in London a few years ago and the client gave me a car to be chauffeured around in and I was having a conversation with a driver, which is what I like to do. 
and I don't know what triggered it, but he turned around to me at one point. He said, you know, there are two kinds of people who sit in the back of this car. People who remember their roots and people who think they deserve to be there. Yeah. And that was a, that was a supercharged, holy shit moment. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's so true. Yeah, I bet. We're both lucky cats, you know? Yeah, we are. Well, and Tom, we, uh, we actually have an interview question that we, that we love asking and it's, tell us the top three reasons you've been successful. The reason that we ask it is to test for humility. And what we're at, what we're, what we're hoping that the candidate's going to say is, well, I have been, I have been successful because I've been so lucky to be surrounded yep. by so, so many amazing people. That's the perfect answer that we're looking yeah. for. And we usually get a variance of that answer. So it's a, it's a really good point. That is a good, that's a, yeah, I, 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 uh, <laughs> I irritated a client. I'm a reasonably good public speaker, and I think I got something called the National Speakers Association, and they invited me to give a speech. And in the old days, which won't do the young people watching us any good, there was a guy by the name of David, David Letterman who had a night show called The Letterman Show, and he always did these top 10 lists about something, and it was number 10, number nine. And so I went through my top 10 list on why I'm such a fabulous speaker. Yeah. And I got to number one, and I said, now, I really want you to pay attention to my number one item because it is by far the most important. And the number one item is choose your parents with great care. Uh, you know, it was like the organizer, I think, wanted to shoot me, but I was telling the truth. Yeah. You know, it, it's, uh, you know, I, I've said to many people that, you know, I, I was born in 19... 42 and of course the americans as is true of the canadians came out of world war ii pretty darned unscathed yeah. and i said i was born in 1942 american white male protestant of intelligent parents and every single one of those variables and some of them like the protestant and so on are not so so significant today but they Sure as hell were in those days. And I said, those, those five variables were the first 99% of my success. And the last 1% is the details. And, it, and damn it, that is not a throwaway line or a speaker's line. It is true. Yeah. Yeah. No, well said. Um, and speak, so speaking of your top 10 list, I want to come back to your top 27 list. And we are gonna make that available, by the way. So we'll have a link uh, in the follow-up notes to your website, and we'll also have a blog post that comes out that includes it. So if you're sort of wondering in the audience, how do I get my hands on those two white papers? We'll make it very easy to access those things. Now, the number one uh, item on your top 27 is training, training, training. So we're all about people. And I guess the, the part that I'm continuing to be curious about and I'm quite disappointed in, Tom, is I don't think that we're getting it uh, on mass the importance of training and investing in people. We'll take the million dollars and put that into R&D, but we won't, put, uh, we won't put 50 managers through a $20,000 leadership training program. Yep. What's the types of things that we should be training people for? And then, and then wh where's the disconnect here? Why are we still not getting the message of how vital training and investing in our people really is? I mean, part of my answer on the disconnect, which is the most unhelpful thing in the world, is makes no sense to me. I mean, the, the one-liner that you probably read in that thing, as I said, if you don't think training is important, ask a police chief, ask a fire chief, 
ask a nuclear plant operator, ask a general in the army or an admiral in the Navy. I mean, I, I said, and I think this is rather true, I said in the, in the, in the military, the person in charge of training is a three-star general or a three-star admiral. In the average corporation, it's a ho-hum mid-level job. And, and so it's, you know, that's the part I don't get. Uh, and I, you know, a little bit of it, and again, you and I are speaking across a national border in terms of Canada, and I don't know account, Canadian accounting rules, but I suspect it's the same. Uh, training is a cost, not a capital investment. Yeah. And that annoys the living hell out of me. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, I wish, I wish we had all day for this. Uh, we can arrange that. Okay, we can do that. One of my favorite quotes came from uh, a movie director by the name of Robert Altman, and he won a Lifetime Achievement Award and Hollywood Oscar. And his one-liner in his speech was, the role of the director is to create a space where actresses and actors can become more than they have ever been before, more than they have ever dreamed of being. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that's the view we should take of, of every person who, who works for us or with us, which is the right term. Uh, and maybe it goes back to our little you know, exchange on eulogy virtues and, and resume virtues. Uh, and, and again, given all the technology change and the things that are going on right now, if somebody works for you, in my opinion, on a part-time project for 90 days, and at the end of those 90 days as a not payroll part-time person, they are not better prepared for the future than they were when they walked in the door, you screwed up as a leader. Uh, but, and with all this stuff, damn it, and the research is there. Funny little thing about training people. It is one hell of a good way to make happy customers and get rich. This is, you know, this is, we ain't talking altruism. I mean, yeah. I think it is altruism, the degree to which you care about people and so on, but it pays. You know, the, 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 the numbers, there's a big research piece that was done in the U.S., and they did the short-termers who do this maximizing shareholder value crap, which has been the most dangerous thing that's happened in the American economy and in the history of the world, uh, and the people who invest for the long term. And the long term financial and growth outcomes were embarrassingly great. Jobs created, money made, et cetera, et cetera. And, and all these things I'm talking about, I just don't get it. It's like pay attention, people, and get rich. What's your problem with that? Yeah. Uh, and no, it doesn't, it doesn't happen immediately tomorrow morning. I do want to add, which wasn't in your question, but it's yeah. in my answer anyway. Uh, and this is training, but also the hiring and promoting part. Uh, hire for 100% of jobs, primarily based on empathy. And promote for 100% of promotions, primarily based on empathy. You know, there was a, there's a guy, I quoted him in the Excellent Dividend book, and he, ran, he runs 
a mid-size excuse my other telephone ringing in the background. <laughs> hey, that's what it's all about. That's right. Uh, at any rate, he, he runs a mid-size biotech company. And he said in simple, plain English, we only hire nice people. And he said, listen, biotech, the people who are doing our research have these insanely complex degrees, and I can't even pronounce the name of the degree, but let's call it some biochemistry this. He said, here's the funny thing. There are actually a lot of people who have those degrees. Don't hire the jerks. Yeah. And whether it's the, and in his case, which I love, is you're the CEO and I'm the supplicant and I blow you away with my scientific background. And you just are shaking because you can't wait to sign me up. Well, once I leave you, and this is his term, I have to run the gauntlet. And running the gauntlet is a dozen interviews with the receptionist, the person who cleans the place, with a fellow scientist, with somebody in the finance department. And any of those... I'm the most incredibly, I have an IQ of 700 and I graduated ahead of number one in my class at MIT. Any one of those dozen people can ding me and say, nope, ain't gonna employ people. And, and I love that. It's, you know, hire, hire people who give a damn about people. And, uh, and, and it is true that, you know, there are a lot of PhDs out there. <laughs> hire, hire the ones you, you know, like to have a have a beer with at the end of the day yeah absolutely there's and i think there's an excerpt in howard schultz's uh, starbucks uh book uh onward and he, he's asked often about all around the world how do you have baristas that are so happy and enjoy people and he says well that's really easy we just hire people that smile so that's uh, that's always stuck out with me for me now what are you looking for with empathy though Tom like do you have some do you have some ways that you are scanning for that early on to try to get an accurate indication Well uh, glad you asked there's and it's in in one of those two papers uh, there's a community health organization it's out of the University of Pennsylvania uh, and in their arena Average turnover is 50 to 75% a year and in the industry, as it was for them. And you know, our viewers, listeners have to listen very carefully to my language here. They changed their hiring practices and the turnover went from over 50% to 1.7%. And on top of that, from an outcome standpoint, the people who they serve were 40% less likely to have a hospitalization than before. And one of the things they did is they had a, for candidates, they had a, they had a social. It was just a little, you know, I'm sure there wasn't beer. It was probably Cokes and iced tea, but they had a little social gathering and you're one of the people who works there and is a judge and it's you know does tom talk all the time or does he occasionally listen and it was a series of social things like this which are not easy to judge but they said the shock of the whole thing after the fact was they discovered that where your degree came from was you know in a deep second or third place and how you would 
done socially. So people, you and I sure as hell wasn't born yesterday and you weren't quite born yesterday. You know, you know people who care about people. I mean, it's funny, my wife and I always have this exchange because I'm one of those horrible people who talks to everybody. And she said, you know, why do you do that? I said, well, let me put it this way. If you're in Washington, D.C., the cab driver is likely to be an Ethiopian. And I said, Susan, he is so much more interesting than you and I are. The poor guy has probably gone through a famine. He's gone through civil war. He probably had a second cousin who was beheaded four blocks away. And our life, you know, by comparison, is just so trivial. And, and it's, everybody is interesting. I mean, I, I, this is silly. <laughs> and this is my, my problem. I was, this is before COVID when you went to grocery stores and talked to people. I was in the aisle of the grocery store and there was, I was getting toilet paper and there was a woman next to me who I don't know who the hell she was or where she was from. We ended up having a 10 minute conversation about soft toilet paper versus non-soft toilet paper. And she said, well, you know, the non-soft stuff flushes better. And I said, well, yeah, but the other one, but people are interesting and people have something to say. And relative to hiring people, look for the people who would love to have a conversation about toilet paper roughness. Yeah, yeah. It's and, a great and I, listen, I, I do want to, and the, and the authors did, and this is non-trivial. They did put an asterisk. They said, we've done this. It has worked but you have to be careful about cultural differences. Uh, you know, you may get a different kind of response from somebody who grew up in a certain kind of environment. Uh, and you know, it's, 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 it's really important to take that into account and it's not easy. And yeah. they think they've done it to a significantly effective degree. Yeah, well, and Tom, that's very timely. We do have a question from the audience that is exactly about that topic addressing managing teams that, that have diverse set of uh, um, geographic location, belief systems, well, cultural nuances. Do you have any sort of suggestions or tips for how do you manage cultural diversity, geographic diversity? Nothing that's of any value. Yeah, yeah, no, that's okay. It's, it was a timely question. The, yeah, um, no, but what, what I mean by that, is my throwaway line. Mm -hmm. uh, don't hire anybody as an external contractor or as an employee. Uh, and, well, number one determinant of everything yeah. in an organization is the quality of first line supervisors. Yeah. Never ever. I mean, you know, there's the old one-liner, which is true. The sergeants run the army, the chief petty officers run the Navy. Uh, and that is 100% true. Never, ever, 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 ever promote anybody to a first-line leadership position who has not demonstrated the ability to get along with and appreciate and understand people of very uh, different backgrounds. And an awful lot of that, too, and this will get into something I think you and I said we were going to talk about, an awful lot of that is the propensity to listen versus the propensity to talk. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you can train it a little bit and make people more sensitive, uh, but hire the listeners. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I think that's really critical. And that does, yeah. to 
Mecca segue that I think you said yeah. you were interested in. Uh, there are gender differences. Yeah. Yeah. And there are women who are crappy listeners and there are men who are great listeners. But statistically, I mean, to use the statistician's term, the central tendency, on average, listeners, women are better listeners than men are. And I, and I think that's, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I, I'm not trained in any of this stuff. But when I got interested in the women's issues, I was reading a fair amount of science. And there's a psychiatrist in the University of California, San Francisco, uh, uh, psychiatrically trained, who wrote a wonderful book called The Female Brain. And the one trivial thing I remember about it is she said at age three days, girl babies are making four times more eye contact with their fellow human being than boys. They are more sociable creatures, which if you believe in Darwin is a no brainer. Yeah. I mean, you and I were Darwinianly selected to run through jungles and throw spears at things. And if you were a really good spear thrower, you know, that was a win. That was a win. The women were back in the camp taking care of not just kids, but taking care of the camp and protecting the camp and, and so on. But there really, there really are gender differences, even though it's never 100%. And, and I think they're, I mean, the, all the research says women are better leaders, women are better negotiators, women are better salespeople. The one I loved is women are better investors. Yeah, we have, we have a slide coming up right now, Tom, and it is a good segue. You made a, a very interesting comment this week about female leaders, and it certainly stirred the pot on social media. And, and I, I am interested about this because it's a really important topic, you know, gender balance and equality. Uh, all of those themes are very, very important. How do we start? How do we actually start to meaningfully move in a direction of gender balance? Like where are some of the, where are some of the incremental steps do you think? Uh, I guess and I haven't got it, I haven't got it, you know, all the questions you've asked are impossible questions to answer. No, I mean, you know, they aren't, they aren't, I hate one-liners when you're talking about something that's deep yeah. and human, psychological. Uh, I'll tell you, my story, and maybe this will help, uh, there was a woman who was the president of my training company, and, you know, I think, I'm a reasonably good feminist. I went to the pro-choice march on Washington and so on and so forth. And she came, she came, we were chatting somewhere and she said, I've got a meeting that you're going to attend in a couple of weeks in Boston. And I was in San Francisco. I said, uh-huh. And she said, I've gathered a group of women and their purpose in life, she said, you're a good boy, but their purpose in life is to educate you. And it was an incredible group. The first woman to drive an Indy 500 car, the woman who headed Disney University, a woman who had headed a very, who created a very successful chain of home furnishings company. And, and I, I thought, and I think I was a pretty good guy, but I mean, the, the day was just, I hate the word epiphany because it sounds like total bullshit to me. 
but it was an epiphany. And what these women were telling me is they would go to a car dealership and you know that you know she's going to a car dealership she happens to bring her husband along and the car salesman never talks to her uh and another woman i loved it was at a different event and this woman was a state senator for the great state of california and i had talked about this in the speech she said let me give you another one for your evidence box she said i had a bad back I took my husband with me to the or to see the orthopedist to talk about the problem. We sat down and she said at the end of five minutes, he had not asked me any questions whatsoever. And she said, I finally turned to him and I looked him in the eye and I said, uh, it's my back that hurts. And, and I really learned about these, began to learn about these issues of disengagement. You know, I was talking about the same stuff in the UK a few months later. And a woman came up to me afterwards, and she was the founder and CEO of a middle-sized investment company. And she said, and the Brits, for tax reasons a while back, and this was a while back, there were, everybody got a company car. And it had to do with, I don't know, the income tax stuff, but it was important. And yeah. so she goes to a car dealership, and she's, you know, looking for a car that's going to be her company car yeah. and the salesman i was thrilled by this to know the brits are as big a bunch of assholes as we are excuse my language but she said the salesman turns to her at one point and said it is so great that you're working for a company that gives their secretaries cars she's the ceo and founder and, and you know i thought that was ha 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 and then i heard the story in a million different ways but part of the answer to your question is I got a couple of business degrees. I like looking at P&Ls. Uh, I went after this issue from the outside in. Uh, and what I mean by that is I said, here's one reason that you might think of paying attention to women more than you do. They buy everything. You know, they buy 80 or 85% of consumer goods, they make, which is less important in Canada, given again, the national financing, they make 95% of healthcare decisions. They make 90% of home financing decisions. And the other thing, and again, I mean, I know we're talking to a global audience, but I'm thinking of you as the two countries of the, you know, that are represented here in that sense of the word. Uh, you have the very senior management issues, but in the U.S., over... 50% of purchasing, commercial purchasing officers are women. So not only are they picking the family vacation, but well over half the time, they are the ones who put out the RFP for a five-year, $2 billion ISIT program or an ERP program or what have you. So I right. said, listen, one good reason to pay attention to women is they buy everything. Yeah. I mean, I have my one-liner for two markets because the other one that nobody pays attention to is old people. Yeah, and I said, here's, here's the deal. Women buy everything and old people have all the money. And if that's not a marketing inducement, I don't know what the hell would be. And then I you know, peel it back to the fact that if this is the case, wouldn't it be interesting to have 50% of your executive team be women? Yeah. And I think it's criminal if you don't. I mean, they're better managers and so on. And that's important. 
hugely important as we just talked about. They buy everything, you dork. And, you know, with the exception of Giorgio Armani, uh, the reality is men do a crappy job of designing things for women. I had a woman architect in a, in a seminar years ago, and we got to talking about this, and she said, well, I, I was taking a woman house hunting, and she said, we, and she was just laughing hysterically. She said, I took her to six houses, and only one of them had the washing machines upstairs on the second floor. And she said, all the beds are on the second floor. What could be more logical than that? And she looked at me and she said, you do realize that one in 1,000 architects who are men would never vaguely have occurred to them that this was a good idea. <laughs> and that's a funny ha-ha, but the numbers involved are you know, just too big not to pay attention to. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Uh, that's great, Tom. And and uh, I was gonna I was gonna touch on the two demographics that you mentioned in your white paper, and you've done a really eloquent job of doing that. So there, there's a couple of other areas I want to explore on your uh, on your top 27 list. Now the and and one of them is sort of is is kind of related to the, to what we've been talking about. But you've used the phrase quite often that the uh, a bias for action, and I've seen you use that in various places online through the years. Can you elaborate? what a bias for action means and why that is so critical? The shorthand form, and this goes all the way back to In Search of Excellence in 1982, yeah. where we had eight attributes of excellent companies and the number one was, uh, was, was called a bias for action. Yeah. Uh, in big companies in particular, there's too much talk and there's too much planning, and there's not enough doing. Uh, Ross Perot started a company called EDS, Electronic Data Systems, that was one of the really first big ISIT houses. And he sold it for a ton of money, I think it was in the mid 80s, to General Motors. And Perot's Perotism that I've always loved is he said, let me explain the difference between GM and EDS. He said, at EDS, our motto is ready, fire, aim. He said, at GM, the motto is ready, aim, 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 aim. And it's a throwaway line, but it's critically important. Uh, Herb Kelleher, who ran Southwest the late Herb Kelleher, sad to say, because he was a good friend who ran Southwest Airlines so brilliantly. His one-liner is he said, we have a strategy at Southwest, it's called doing things. Uh, trying stuff, and, and the problem, which is true of every darn thing we've talked about today, is I can say it, you can say it, but these are relative to an organization of six, let alone 666, deep, cultural issues you know they are not about issuing an edict they are about a leader like you or me when i had a bigger company who lives this stuff every day who who you know is focused on what are you trying next as opposed to you know creating another 500 page or even 50 page strategic plan yeah. uh you know i will admit to a bias i'm to be sure i'm only 77 but I've never had a plan for anything. And, and I'm stealing from 
uh, and I wish to hell, I mean, you're in not the part of Canada that speaks French the way the Easterners do, Bonjour. but I wish I could get my French right. There's a wonderful Napoleonic line, which basically says, you know, don't talk, jump into the middle of the fray and figure out what the hell happens. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, that's the key. Just get on with it. It's the key, but it is not simple. Yeah. You know, anytime I see one of those 3,897 books on the business shelf that it says the seven ways to do blank, they are probably good ideas, but there are no simple seven rules for, I mean, I've been asked a lot for the work about the, you know, work from home stuff. Well, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that socially? And there have been people with good ideas, but, and the two things are tied to your question. I said, look, read everything you can, get as many good ideas as you can, but let me tell you the real secret. You are you, you're not me, you're not somebody else. There's only one answer, experiment. Yeah. You know, the, you're going to have 23, 23 Zoom meetings this way. Try it this way. Try it that way. Look in the mirror. Think about your facial expression, whatever. Read the, read the articles. Get as smart as you can. But at the end of the day, it's about trying stuff out. Do we go around the quote unquote room, virtual room? Or do we do this or do we do that? And there are a million rituals that you could try. But the only way you'll figure it out is if you try them. And the other thing on top of that is when you are trying them, for God's sakes, tell the nine people who are working for you that that's what they're, you're doing. I mean, I want that boss in the first virtual meeting to say, let me give you a secret. I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. But we want to get some work done. And we're going to be living with each other in a very different way than we were we when we were in the office. And over the next two weeks, as we adjust, we're all gonna do stupid things. But, and I hate that. It, the boss has got to feel good enough about herself or himself to be able to go into one of those meetings, virtual or real, and say, you know, and I will not go this far with the language, but I don't really know what the F I'm doing. But you and I have got to figure this out together. So let's play with it. And, you know, so many bosses are insecure that they think if they say something like that, they're going to give, the, give away the store. It's like a funny thing with the equivalent of this conversation. You know, a lot of the newscasters, you know, I'm sure, sure the CBC is doing it as much as the, the U.S. networks. The newscaster is in his or her home. And I, I saw this little example. Um, you've got a five-year-old kid and you're a famous Canadian newscaster and you're talking about serious things like war and peace and economic disasters. And your five-year-old comes through the door and half climbs up on your lap. There are two responses. Response number one, which I watched, is to effectively push the kid away. And now I'm talking to 4 million Canadians or 11 million Americans. The best response, even though we're talking about war and peace, is to pick the five-year-old up and say, well, you know, maybe I'm going to ask Georgie about this. But to be, if you behave, I mean, this is a, excuse my language, a sucker play. If you behave like a human being and act like you are an at-home parent with a five-year-old right in the middle of this conversation, 
you just won the hearts and minds of 98% of the people who are participating. And I, I wanted to weep for this jackass. I mean, I want to, I mean, he didn't do anything vicious or physical, but it was, you know, one of these. I wanted to weep for him and I, I wanted to, you know, have a call in like this and say, do you know that you have a sub-freezing IQ? Uh, it's dumb. I mean, not only is it inhuman, and I don't like you because of it, but it's dumb. I can win my whole audience over. You know, I mean, one of the things I do in giving a, a speech is I always hit the streets for a little bit, and I want to, you know, just get a physiological, <laughs> physiological feel of people in Calgary or people in L.A. or people in Oakland or what have you, and, and, and just have a feel, and I shoot the shit. And uh, I read the local newspapers. Uh, I remember, and this is a horrible thing on all dimensions, I lived in the little tiny state of Vermont for many years. Uh, and there was a story, I think I was in Minneapolis, and it was about somebody who misbehaved as a driver. And they had had 15 drunk with driving convictions. And I went in, and nobody even killed, or it would have been obviously not funny. I went in, and I said, God, I'm feeling at home. I said, you guys had somebody who caused an accident who had 15 DWIs, drunk without, drunk while intoxicated. I said, I thought that only happened in Vermont. Well, I mean, you do it with the right facial expression and so on. I had the hearts and minds of a thousand people within 90 seconds. And that sounds like an arrogant statement. And it is an arrogant statement, but it is true. Yeah. It's just, I, I, again, one thing I, I remember, I was talking to a big group of a couple of thousand people, and they had the right cameraman. They had sports cameramen who had a shoulder-launched camera. Yeah. And somebody had told me about a guy in the 20th row who was kind of a billionaire and had really done this thing. So I start the speech. I leave the stage. I go up to the 20th row. I ask the person sitting next to this guy to move, and I can you know, proceed with that again. If you hadn't had a sports camera so that it couldn't have been on my face, it wouldn't have worked. But yeah. he and I had a conversation for five minutes yeah. uh, about this stuff. And, you know, and, and I'm not talking about, again, for the best of reasons, you win the hearts and minds of the people who you want to convince. Yeah. You know, and the research, again, on this, which is different but the same with the work-from-home stuff, is, and, and this is hard-nosed research, Body language is five more important than five times more important than the words you use. Uh, period. All stop. With the wrong expression, you can wipe out the most brilliant statement ever made by humankind. And you know, it's it's just it's it's really really. <laughs> excuse me. This is a cough I've had for six months. I am not. You're not contagious. Germs through the you know through the plexiglass. <laughs> Yeah. Other, you, I mean, I had to throw the other one in when I made that comment about body language. The other thing, yeah. and I'm always angry about this, and I'm pissed off at anybody who's watching us who doesn't get it. There is enough research to sink a ship that says positive remarks are 30 times more powerful than negative remarks. Yeah. Keep your negative feedback to yourself. Uh, you know, there was a great American professional football coach once who said, he said, I don't worry about weaknesses. I like to build on strengths. Yeah. And, you know, that's great at, at uh, you know, 
CFL or NFL yeah. uh, sports, and it's also great in a seven-person project team working on an ISIT project. Build on strengths. Yeah. And then, you know, I mean, well, I don't know. We, we, we haven't got all well, Tom, here. I, I have to ask you, and I'm sorry, I'm getting inundated with messages about this, and, and uh, I might get my wrist slapped for even asking this, but uh, we're getting close to being up on the hour, and we, we, can do, we can do two things here. We could finish on the hour like we, like we planned, or if you love the conversation and you feel up to it, we could keep going. But I'm, not I, I, I'm totally respectful of your time and all of that. So tell me, tell me what your thoughts let's, are on ending. Let's do both. Let's, let's have our formal conversation. Yeah. And then I think you have questions, right? Yeah, the lots questions. of, well, there's tons of let's, questions. Let's, let's, let's take five or six minutes kind of after the formal stuff and let's just take questions. Sure. I'm tired of listening to you, and you're probably tired of listening to me. So why don't we why don't we have a conversation with the real people? Sounds good. So I'll get to some of these questions here uh, now. You mentioned earlier the the difference between eulogy virtues and resume virtues, and I know that you don't like to talk about yourself, but you have accomplished a lot in your career, and you still have lots to accomplish. I know that. But what do you want your legacy to be? I grew up in the near, not in the tough city of Baltimore, Maryland. And I dedicated my third book to a guy by the name of Don Schaefer, William Donald Schaefer, who had been the mayor of Baltimore. And Baltimore's now got a ton of problems again, but he really turned the city around. And when he retired as mayor, I was a speaker at his retirement party. And you know, after we all said all the wonderful things, he gets up and uh, he said, he said, let me tell all of you here in case there's practical implication. Let me tell you what, on, what I want on my tombstone. He said, I want two words. He cared. He cared. And Uh, that's, you know, I've got four quant degrees, uh, and I said to somebody, nothing I've said for the last 40 years requires more than a certificate of graduation from the third grade at the age of eight. Uh, we're saying put people first, try a bunch of stuff, uh, and I care about this stuff and I do think I pretty much transmit that by that body language and so on. And, uh, you know, I'd be happy like that he cared to say he tried his damnedest. Uh, I will say, which I think is related and it's important to me at least, if the motivational speaker, Tony Robbins, comes into a meeting of a thousand people, he expects to change a thousand lives. If I come into a meeting of a thousand people and three people leave the meeting and say, you know, I'm gonna really do things differently. I have had one hell of a good day. So, you know, you hope you get through to somebody here or somebody there and that it read. And the funny thing about it is, which I figured out is, I never change anybody's mind. 
the, what I do is people who already buy this stuff, I give them a real swift boot in the ass. And I don't know whether you're a football fan or not. Huge. But Patriots fan. Huge. I said, I'm, not, I'm of no use to somebody who's on their own 20-yard line. But what I hope to do is help people who are on their opponent's five-yard line and give them a real swift kick in the butt and push them into the end zone. <laughs> and I've had so many people come up to me after speech, which is so gratifying, and, and say, you know, I always thought I was a weirdo until today. And people look at me funny for doing the things that I do. But what you've said to me today is, hey, that's okay. It's all right to be a business person and be nice. That's not, you know, not, not the end of the world. And so, you know, it's you, you, and same thing is true for you. You know, you, you hit, if we've got X number of people listening to us and watching us on a regular basis, you'll catch somebody here and there. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, 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 one of my happiest days came recently, and this was out of a tweet stream. Uh, somebody said they'd read In Search of Excellence, and our book did so well, so that's not unusual. But this guy said, I used it in teaching Sunday school. I started crying when I read that. You know, and, but it, the point is, it isn't religious capital R or lowercase r, but it's about taking care of people. Yeah. And so, you know, I don't know how the hell you'd use it in Sunday school, but yeah. I got it. It's just, I, the, the weirdest thing with the, uh, and again, I won't resort to the language which I used, uh, but I did when the new book came out a year or so ago, did 20 or 25 podcasts, because that's the way you do PR now. I swear to God, 23 of the people started the conversation by saying, now you, you talk a lot about people. And I look at them and I say, and remember, I was in the Navy, so I know how to use long strings of foul language, should I be so inclined. I look at them, and depending on whether it's a family audience or not, my response is, what the F L am I, what the F else am I supposed to talk about? You know, my definition of an organization is uh, very simple, Four, six words. Yeah, people serving people serving people. Leaders serving employees serving customers. And it's all about people and it's all about service. And that's the all-important, getting back to your starting point about 98, that's the all-important first 98%, or yeah. maybe even a little bit higher than 98%. Incidentally, uh, thinking of your 98% when on the execution, yeah. I've, got, I've got new, I found it 10 years ago. My favorite execution quote uh, comes from a U.S. Army general by the name of Omar Bradley. And he was the commander of all American troops. The Canadians were led by Montgomery. You know, poor you. Uh, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. He was the commander of all the uh, U.S. troops at D-Day. And his one-liner that I loved was, amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. You know, you can have a strategy for occupying France and pushing the Germans out, 
but if the bullets don't show up at the guns at the right point, it is just another piece of paper. And I have to say one more thing. And I'm, it's funny, I've said it a hundred times and I'm really getting tears in my eyes. Uh, Montgomery uh, did command the Brits and I think the Canadians. Uh, and they said the day before D-Day, Montgomery gave one of the greatest charge him up speeches that had ever been given. And not Bradley, but the guy who, who ran the whole coalition was uh, General Eisenhower, Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh, <laughs> thinking about where you're speaking to me from, he was a Midwesterner. Yeah. And I think that explains most of it. Uh, Montgomery gave a great speech and Eisenhower went out to the beach and walked among the soldiers and put his arm around them and wished, wished them his best. And somebody wrote about it and they took this out of a diary. And try, you try to read this sentence without, without tearing up. He said, they were talking about Eisenhower and they said, Eisenhower's demeanor was such that parents were willing to send their boys to die for him. I mean, Jesus Christ, what, what an incredible, you know, and the, the other thing is we see these generals today, and I don't know about the Canadian generals, but the Americans now look like those old Soviet generals with 80 rows of ribbons. Uh, we got something, everybody who went on active duty in the military got a simple little medal, it was called National Defense Medal, and it just says, you know, you were there. Uh, Eisenhower, obviously, particularly from various countries, had enough medals to, you know, fill a pickup truck. Uh, he was buried in a very simple and plain uniform with his National Defense Medal on, period. And that's who he was. And, and you know, I, I did make the joke, uh, but I really do think Midwesterners are a little nicer than the rest of us. The, the one-liner, which I'm sure you heard about, about Chicago. Chicago is New York without the attitude. And, you know, a little bit of truth to that. Uh, there, is a, there is a level of decency that uh, maybe the Easterners and the Westerners don't have. So, you know, congratulations on choosing the right birthplace. <laughs> well, Tom, thanks for sharing that story. That's very profound, um, very heartfelt. I can't help but notice, okay, so 17 books, 40 years uh, in this business. Uh, it's hard enough to write one book. Our founder is in process. Tim O'Connor's writing a book right now. and It's hard enough to write one. So to write 17 books, uh, to speak in front of, you know, 5 million plus people, to keep going as active as you are on Twitter, sharing your opinions and trying to make an impact, like what drives you at this stage of your career? What motivates you right now? Same as in the past, you have to give a shit. Yeah, it's a as I said jokingly, which isn't a joke. If you graduated from the third grade at age eight, you can handle all the intellectual sophistication of my arguments, which is zero. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know. I don't know where where it came from. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously, I like doing what I'm doing. I'm shocked. I'm as shocked as you are by the books. I was trained as an engineer, for God's sakes. Yeah. Engineers, you know, I was a pretty good writer in high school, but as, as evidence suggests, they drive that out of you in engineering school. Right. Uh, 
I've had good editors that that uh, that certainly doesn't hurt but it's uh it's stuff I care about and it is stuff that works mm -hmm. uh, and again as I said my good luck is I'm not trying to change a thousand minds I'm trying to change two mm -hmm. uh, you know you you do you do you do what you can and uh, uh, <laughs> the, the only part that I'm loath to say this isn't the books but I was trained I mean my PhD at Stanford was in organizational effectiveness and the guy who trained me was got his PhD in psychological statistics at the age of 20 from the University of Chicago for great God's sakes uh, and I was trained as a rat science as a rat psychologist as I call it BF Skinner positive reinforcement and I said to somebody, I really would love to think that I give these speeches because I really care. But I said, I'm also scared that maybe I've just become addicted to the applause. Uh, <laughs> and you never, you know, it's probably a little bit of both. You, you, know, you never, you never know. I mean, I, my speech thing is, which I really do mean, I've given 2,500 speeches and I haven't gotten one right yet, but maybe tomorrow. Yeah. I remember Tom Hanks said when somebody had an interview, he said, well, I said, I've done a bunch of movies and I haven't performed above the level of C plus yet. <laughs> you know, so you, you keep, you keep, you keep going, going yeah. after. Well, being addicted to the dopamine hit of changing people's lives. Uh, I could think of worse things to be addicted to Tom. <laughs> Let's uh, let's take some some more questions from the audience now. So I've got one from Andrea that's been sitting up there for a bit, and and uh, it's interesting. What was your biggest leadership failure where you had the most learning? Well, boy, I'm not. I have a real problem with you because you're very good at what you do, and so it almost makes me want to tell the truth. Uh, I've been encouraged by a lot of people to write a memoir and I'm reluctant because I think you should tell the truth and in a memoir it's useless uh, the biggest failure twice is paying too much attention to work and not enough attention to my spouse uh, and, fa and family or what have you. You, know, you get caught up in it, and as you can tell, I really love it. And uh, I'm not happy about those profession those personal failures, and I wouldn't want to have to write about them, particularly in, in great detail. Uh, business failures, I mean, I'm a... I'm a phony, I write about business, but I've never had anything more than a 25 or 30 person company. So I can't talk about it the same way a CEO of a $7 billion Canadian or American or French company would. Uh, but it is the resume virtues and the eulogy virtues and they're, you know, they're, I won't say what can I say because that's dismissive. Uh, some real lapses that I'm not happy about, which is why you'll never read a memoir. 
Hey, you can't, it's bullshit to give somebody a memoir and not talk about that kind of stuff. And I can't write about it and I would not be right for other people. And that's another discussion that you and I will have over a beer. Yeah. Well, Judge Molson, I'm sure you will not be over, bud. <laughs> That's good. I, uh, are, are there any craft beers in Canada as there are now in the U.S.? No, the craft beer market in our part of the country is massive, and it's just getting started. So hilarious! Yeah, I said to somebody, you know, it used to be, and of course, I'm a lot older than most of the people who are, you know, all the people who are watching us. It used to be that you gave a two dollar tip to somebody who helped you. And then it got up to $5. And I said to a friend who gave somebody five bucks, I said, give them 10. A single beer costs 10 bucks now. It's not, you know, not what it used to be. But uh, yeah, the craft beer thing is, and it's really dry. It's, what I do love is it's really hitting some of the big guys right in the chops. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I don't understand. Uh, I don't understand cucumber beer, I will have to say, or whatever the hell is in yeah. some nor, nor do I. And I, it's funny, Tom. What uh, uh, one of the one of the partners in our business, Jeff White, is a former uh, former naval commander in the in the Canadian Armed Forces, and then uh, he's also a craft beer owner. He owns the Canmore Brewing Company. So uh, some cool parallels there. Yeah, absolutely, Tom. And then I, I, I will say to various people in various places, there is. No question whatsoever that the four most important years in my life, which is the opposite of that answer, were the four years I spent in the Navy. Yeah. No issue. Yeah. And to have done it from age 24 to age 28, two in Vietnam, two in the Pentagon, mm -hmm. uh, it was a life changer. I mean, I did get, which is the same thing that's true for all of us. I, uh, my two years in Vietnam were two different deployments, 18 months on the ground, not two years. You don't. You don't exaggerate about numbers like that. Two nine-month deployments. And I had two commanding officers, and I've written about them, and I call them Captain Day and Captain Knight. And the first one was the most incredible positive role model for leadership known to humankind, and the second one was the worst. And you can't ask for anything more than that. Yeah. So whenever you're looking at a leadership issue, you say, what would Captain Day have done and what would Captain Knight have done? And you do the one and you avoid the other like the plague. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Tom, I, I have to acknowledge the level of uh, transparency and vulnerability that you're showing with us today. And you talk about empathy so much and uh, empathy and vulnerability and authenticity and courage. Those are all very interrelated. And I'm not sure if you can be good at one with not being good at the rest. And judging by the, the comments that started showing up in the chat when you were sharing some of your deep personal stories, if you ever did release uh, your memoirs, people would love you more, not less. So, well, that's very kind. Why don't we end it on that? That's a good, that's a good ending point. Absolutely. Uh, and I do have, I do have uh, a couple things I have to do. Sounds good. Tom, thank even, you. So even much. though it's stay at home day. Oh, sorry. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, so many people um, uh, admire and care and love you because you've made such an impact, a selfless impact in, in all of our lives. And you continue to do that every single day. Uh, I don't think there's a day that goes by where I don't learn something from you or I'm not amused uh, or uh, caught off guard by a paradigm shift that you've caused inside of me by your perspective on things. So just thank you for devoting your life to serving others. And you just taking time to spend an hour and a half with us today. I, I don't think we ever thought that this would be something that would come out of the pandemic. And it's one of the beautiful things 
that we're experiencing is the, just the ability to connect with people that you wouldn't have before. So, Tom, thank you so much. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get the last word in anyway. Um, and I want to say to you, and this is not an exaggeration, the interviewee is as good as the interviewer, period. So thank you for a wonderful morning. Thank you, Tom. I, yeah, I don't know how to properly thank you for that other than just to say thank you very much. Thanks. Take care. Thanks to everybody for joining us. And uh, you can stay connected with, with us uh, on a go forward basis as well. If we didn't get to your questions or you have other comments or stories to share, just accolades or, or feedback for Tom, we'll, we'll make sure we get it to him. And you can send that to us at info at unleashresults.com. Please fill out the feedback survey when you leave here today by clicking the continue button after you click the leave button. We are running a workshop on June 3rd on culture and connection in, in the time of pandemic. So how do you build a team that performs at its highest level in this current environment? Uh, you can certainly contact us on Twitter as well. And Tom's newsletter is available at tompeters.com backslash contact bond backslash subscribe. It's a fantastic newsletter. We'll make sure that his two white papers are available. And next week's episode, right out of Oakland, California, we're joined by Brad Stolberg, and he is a peak performance expert. Been following him for two years. He is filled with simple, practical advice to live your best life and show up at your very best version of yourself every single day. No hacks, no BS, just the essentials of being at your best more often. That's next Thursday, June 4th from 10 to 11 Mountain. Tom Peters, we're beside ourselves. Thank you so much for this amazing hour and a half with you. And I uh, look forward to staying in touch with you, of course. Be well, everybody. And uh, hoping business is treating you well. And as this pandemic progresses, that your family's healthy, you're healthy. And ultimately, that your organizations are, uh, if they're not thriving right now, they're on their way to recovery and rebuild. And we're certainly here to help with that. Thank you, everyone. Have a great rest of the day.